It's like a drum roll before a giant announcement. It's like the big musical introduction before the star of the show comes on stage. It's like the announcement of the winner of a presidential election. It's like the excitement of the build-up to a 4th of July fireworks show grand finale. That something big is happening, something exciting is coming, something so important, so significant, that you get the feeling that everything was pointing to this moment, to this very moment. And this is exactly what we find in our text of Isaiah 51 and 52 tonight. There's mounting excitement, and we see this evidenced by little short bursts of, we might call it poetic breathlessness, just little staccato expressions of high-strung emotion. In Isaiah 51 and 52, the Lord continues to give hope to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. But as we've seen beginning in chapter 49, he's also giving hope to the world. It's a bigger picture, a much bigger vision than just the immediate future of Jewish exiles. And, And God is dealing with the eternal future, not only of just his people Israel, but the spiritual people of all of the nations, the future believers from every single nation, every tribe, every tongue. And we've been examining God's plan for Israel, God's plan for the nations. And what we're finding is that we hope in the fact that God is faithful to his promises. And because of this, because we see that, we're confident that he's faithful to the promises to us. That when Jesus said he would not lose one of his own, we can take that to the bank. Why? Because God proved that already in Israel. That when Jesus said that all who are weary and heavy laden with sin can come to him and they'll find rest for their souls, we can take that to the bank. Why? Because God has already proven his faithfulness with Israel. When the Apostle Paul said that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we can take that to the bank because Israel, no nation has ever done as badly as she has and yet God has kept her. God has continued to not condemn her. And so watching God's dealing with Israel, if I could put it this way, it's like stacking the deck in our favor. It's like showing us a living picture of the tremendous loving grace of God and we can see ourselves in that picture. We can see this portrait of how God has been faithful century after century after century. And if you look closely, you say, hey, I'm in that picture. Yes, you are. You're part of God's faithfulness, God's complete other devotion to his people. And so we're considering this large section tonight because it's a single literary unit. It's, it's one unit, and it's explosive in its content. It's dramatic. It builds tension. It builds pressure. It's like Samson when his enemies tried to tie him up with ropes, and he stretched those ropes until they burst. It's like a dam that's just kind of vibrating and shaking and rumbling with billions of cubic feet of water behind it, just straining to be released. It's like lighting a fuse that can only end in an explosion of heavenly truth beyond anything that an Israelite could have imagined and beyond anything that we can imagine. So let's light the fuse. Let's just read the whole text. Isaiah 51, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through 52, verse 12. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. 
Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Look, lift your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who's made like grass? And have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has born. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They're full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you've made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise, be seated, O Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you are sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what I have here, 
have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, in this section, what we see are the promises of God to Israel and the calling of God to Israel. And that there's an urgency, there's an appeal, there's an earnestness to this message. As a matter of fact, this text is such a literary masterpiece from the Holy Spirit that there are numerous ways that we could organize our thoughts tonight, that we could organize the text. A... We could look at the fact that it's filled with two basic repeated commands to Israel to listen, 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 and then respond, respond, respond. We could organize it that way. Or B, we could look at the fact that it's organized into eight oracles, eight proclamations of God's promises and God's calling. Or C, we could look at the fact that there are about eight themes that are sprinkled throughout this text and they're repeated two and three and sometimes four times. It's like being presented this beautiful cake that's floating in midair and no matter how you slice it, it's going to be delicious. So how do we slice this? A, two basic repeated commands to listen and respond or B, eight oracles of God's promises and calling or C, eight themes sprinkled throughout this section. I choose D, all of the above. This is the only time I'm ever gonna preach this text and so we're gonna do it all three. So let's start with the first way we would organize this. This section has two basic messages to Israel. And they're simple messages. They're both commands. Listen and respond. And we get each one three times. First, God says to Israel, listen and see if you can hear his focus. Chapter 51, verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Chapter 51, verse 4. Give attention to me, my people. Give attention to me, my nation. Chapter 51, verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose, law is, in, in whose heart is my law. What's the, what's the emphasis? What do you hear? What are you listening for? Listen, give attention. Listen to whom? To me. What is the message of God to the exiles in Babylon? That God is the only source of revelation. He's the only source of truth, the only source of hope. No one else can do anything for you. There's no other hope anywhere else. And then after saying, listen, he says, respond. And now we get a three-part call to Israel to respond. And he gives them basically three commands. He says, stand up, get dressed, and let's go. Stand up, get dressed, and let's go. 51 verse 17. 
Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the cup, the cup, the bowl, the cup of staggering. So stand up. Chapter 52, verse 1. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Get dressed. Chapter 52, verse 11. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves. Stand up, get dressed, let's go. And so God gives Israel the call to ready herself, to be prepared for the salvation of the Lord that he is bringing her home. By the way, this makes a really good gospel presentation because this is a clear call that we could use today to stand up and ready yourself to be right before God, to get dressed in what? In the righteousness of Christ God tells Israel in 52 verse 1 to put on her spiritual garments that's often indicative of spiritual cleanliness like the pure garments white and clean of the saints in the book of Revelation. And then let's go. Depart from the kingdom of darkness and be transferred to the kingdom of light. It is a a broad gospel presentation. And so we see this clear, listen, 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 respond, 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 this sermon to Israel. But the Holy Spirit has also organized this text into eight oracles. An oracle is simply a prophetic proclamation, a a short burst, as it were, of prophetic information from God. And so we'll just assign a title to each one to help us organize our thoughts. We'll assign a title. The first oracle found in 51, 1 through 3, remember the past and future. Remember the past and future. God tells Israel to look to the rock from which you were hewn, the quarry from which you were dug. Now, what is the rock in the quarry? Verse 2, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. In other words, he's saying, remember where you came from. Remember that I miraculously brought you from an old man and a woman long past childbearing years, and yet here you are by the millions. Look back to the past. And what is Israel's future? Verse 3, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. What is this? This is what God intended Israel to be all along, a return to Eden, a return to paradise, a place where man and God commune unhindered by sin. Now, there's no reason to just symbologize this, to make it symbolic. Certainly, there's enough other scriptures that predict an ecological renewal of the land that we can confirm that. But along with the ecological renewal of the land, that the desert is like a garden Now there's joy, songs are abounding, thanksgiving is a normal daily routine. So the first oracle, remember the past and the future. And we get another burst, another oracle. The second one we might title, a great division is coming. A great division is coming. We find this in verses four through six of chapter 51. To the exiles in Babylon and right now, By the way, the righteous and the unrighteous are mixed and they're mingled. They're put together. And what did Jesus tell us about the church age? He said that the wheat and the tares will grow up together in the church until God separates, until he winnows the tares out. And here is the coming great division. Verse four, 
Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. That a day of reckoning is coming to all. The law is coming. It's like an old west town that didn't have a sheriff and they get a telegram, the law is on its way. In verse five, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me and for my arm they wait. Some will be overjoyed with hope and others will be judged. By the way, the coastlands hoping for me in Isaiah, this almost always speaks of the Gentiles, those who are the farthest away from salvation, that even the Gentiles will hope for him. And then verse six, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath for the heavens vanish like smoke. This is a look at the future. The earth will wear out like a garment and those who dwell in it, they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. That the division isn't just between men. The division extends to dividing the heavens and the earth and to judging the sinful creation. And of course, if you read long enough in Isaiah, you see that after the judgment of sinful creation, there is a recreation. That sin in humanity and sin in creation will vanish like smoke. But the righteous will remain with the Lord forever. The second oracle, a great division is coming. There's another staccato, quick oracle. The third one, no one can hurt you. No one can hurt you. And we see this in verses seven and eight. God speaks to all who have or who will have a true internal reality of faith. Verse seven, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. You can hear the new covenant being foreshadowed there. And he's saying, you have nothing to fear at all. The end of verse seven, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. What is reviling? It is the abusive condemnation of mankind to persecute the true believer and to put down the God of the Bible that those who hate the Lord's people will be dealt with. They will become a distant smoking memory. God describes this in verse eight, for the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. The third oracle, no one can hurt you. He gives another quick oracle. The Lord is dressing for battle. The Lord is dressing for battle. That's how we might entitle verses nine through 11 of chapter 51. And now we see God, in essence, talking to himself, addressing himself. He says in verse nine, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. And then he gives this poetic reminder of the past conquests of the Lord. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Now, just to be clear here, this Rahab is not the woman of Jericho that God rescued 700 years earlier. Rahab was a derogatory name for Egypt. It was a cut down. It means storm or turbulence or even sea monster. And it speaks of a dragon, of some sort of sea monster, something big and powerful, But in Isaiah 30, verse 7, God calls her Rahab, who sits still. Literally in Hebrew, Rahab, the do-nothing, the powerless one. But Rahab the dragon was not just a derogatory nickname for Egypt. It was also a part of the Canaanite pantheon of gods. And she would be the god of chaos, the god of arrogance, 
She's also included in Babylonian mythology. She has a related name, Tiamat, and it's probably designed after the ancient sea creature, Leviathan, which is mentioned in the Old Testament five times. And so this ancient sea serpent that is likely some form of dinosaur that men saw in ancient times had been named Rahab and given a, an identity as a god, not only as a god of Egypt, but a god of the Canaanites and the, uh, a god of Babylon. Now, obviously, the, the goddess Rahab doesn't exist except in whatever demonic forces are convincing people that she does. But the question is, is Rahab here referring to the Egyptian Rahab, to the Canaanite Rahab, or the Babylonian Rahab? Well, think for a moment about what all three of those peoples have in common. You can take your pick. In favor of the Egyptian Rahab, verse 10 Was it not you who dried up the sea, still speaking to the arm of the Lord? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? This is a clear reference to the Red Sea rescue. So in that case, Rahab is is defeated. Well, what about in favor of the Canaanite Rahab? Well, God had already defeated the Canaanites at the Israelite conquest. And so in essence, the arm of the Lord had already defeated Rahab the Canaanite. Now, if you know there's an Egyptian Rahab, God dispatched her. If you know there's a Canaanite Rahab, God dispatched her. And you're sitting in exile in Babylon and you know there's a Babylonian Rahab. Hmm, what's going to happen next? God will dispatch her as well as personified in these nations. So which one do you want to pick? Egypt, Canaanite, Rahab, or Babylonian Rahab? Doesn't matter. God will dispatch whatever false gods will come against him, whatever nation will come against him. And God was getting ready to defeat the Babylonians as recorded in Daniel chapter five. The point is, God is calling to himself to dress for battle as he did when he defeated Egypt, to dress for battle as he did when he defeated Canaan, to dress for battle as he will defeat Babylon. And what's the result? In verse 11, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now this would certainly be an encouragement to the exiles in Babylon, but what they could not know is that the ultimate fulfillment of that promise has never happened. It didn't happen in the 5th century B.C. Yes, some of them did return. There's millions of them in in Babylon and what would become Medo-Persia, but only about 50,000 of them returned total. So that promise has never been fulfilled in its entirety. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, what you find is that they didn't really return with everlasting joy upon their heads. What they returned to was a bunch of turmoil, a bunch of political problems, and a bunch of nations surrounding them that didn't want them to exist. Pretty much the way Israel is right now. They didn't return to peace. The fourth oracle, the Lord is dressing for battle, and it is a battle yet to come. There's a fifth quick oracle. We might title, Death Shall Not Conquer You. Death shall not conquer you. We find this in verses 12 through 16. First, God is going to contrast himself with the oppressors of Israel. And he's wondering to his people, why are you so afraid? Why are you so fearful? He says, I, I am he who comforts you. 
Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who's made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? Where is the wrath of the oppressor? Let me put this in context. He says, the son of man who's made like grass, who are you afraid of man who dies? Every one of you at one point in your life have been afraid of a wicked person either emotionally, physically, spiritually, you've been afraid of a wicked person. If I could change the hymn just a little bit, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, where is that guy that you were afraid of? He's long dead. He's long done. He's gone. And God is saying, why are you afraid? Long after your oppressors are just dust in the ground, I'll still be with you. And the Lord promises to rescue the oppressed Israelite that the end of this people won't be like their oppressors. They won't just silently go to the grave with no one to advocate for them. Verse 14, he who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. But here's where it begins to get a little bit interesting because yes, this text here gives hope to the Babylonian exile, but you'll notice two things. We're not in exile and we're not in Babylon. So this text begins to go far outside those borders. This cannot just be speaking of the Babylonian exile. It can't be. When the exile first happened, of course, it was tragic, but that's not how most Jews eventually came to view it. If you remember, the exile from, from the southern kingdom of Judah to Babylon happened in three waves. It happened in 605 B.C., it happened in 597 B.C., and then it happened in 586 B.C. was the final time when, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. And so, yes, it was tragic, and there was great sorrow over this. But eventually, the people who were there, and particularly the children who were born there, just settled into their new home, into a new reality. In fact, prophetically, through the prophet Jeremiah, God commanded Israel. He said, you're going to be there a long time, so settle in. Here's what he told them in Jeremiah 29. He says, settle in, but don't ever forget Israel. Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. And live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. What? Be good citizens of the cities of Babylon? Yes. Be a good citizen and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Wait a minute. We've been told, don't forget your home. Don't forget Israel. And here we are in Babylon. We're supposed to be good citizens. We're supposed to settle into where we are. The point of this is, is they're not really prisoners. Yes, they're in exile, but they're not enslaved like they were in Egypt. They're not bowed down as verse 14 says they are. So what is this that they're bowed down under? The Jew is living under the burden of their rejection of Yahweh and their own sin. They are bowed down, not literally in slavery, because they're not in slavery. They're in a nice place. Babylon was the greatest place on earth to live at the time. But they are under the burden of their own sin, under the burden of rejecting God, 
that person is bowed down. That person is a prisoner in need of release. God reaffirms his sovereignty that when the waves roar, when his plan seems dangerous and treacherous, that you've been moved to Babylon and this is just where you're going to be and nothing's ever going to be restored, that he's the one who's actually in charge. Verse 15, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. In other words, when bad things are happening, when when my will doesn't seem to be working out, I'm the one doing that. The Lord of hosts is his name. When you ask the Lord, who is doing this terrible thing to me in my life? Verse 15 is your answer. It's me. I'm the sovereign one. And when the storms are raging, when the waves are going, it's me. I am the Lord. Death shall not conquer you. You won't just sink defeated into the grave. Now, verse 16 is kind of the literary center of the whole section. So we're going to return to that in a bit. We get a sixth oracle. And we might title this one, God will vindicate his people. God will vindicate his people. And we see this in verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Israel has been devastated by the discipline of the Lord. She has been drinking fully of the wrath of God for decades and decades. She has no heroes to rescue her. All of her sons are like captured animals. There are no heroes. There's nobody who's going to rise up to save them. Verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has born. In other words, there's no heroes coming that they can't figure it out. They can't raise up somebody. They cannot make this happen. Verse 19, these two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They're full of the wrath of God, the rebuke of your God. This is such a picturesque illustration here. God is picturing Israel as drunk on his wrath and they're staggering and they're falling over and they're captured, they're helpless. But there's hope. Verse 21, Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine, they're drunk with the wrath of God. Thus says your Lord, your Adonai, your master, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink it no more. In other words, this this bowl, this symbolic uh, cup here filled with the wrath of God. And this is a, a, a common symbol to us in scripture. What did Jesus ask for in the garden of Gethsemane? If it's possible, may this what? Cup pass from me. That this cup that Israel has been forced to drink and just drink and drink and drink and, and, and be oppressed and be oppressed and be oppressed. God says, I will take it from you. And so the natural question is, well, that's great, but what are you going to do with it? And verse 23 is a surprise, happy ending. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over and you've made your back like the ground, like the street for them to pass over. You know what the Assyrians did when they conquered the northern kingdom? Same thing that the Babylonians did when they conquered the southern kingdom. They would gather all the people that they are going to take into captivity, that they are going to at first enslave and then eventually just inculcate into their society. And they would make them lie down by the hundreds and by the thousands in rows. And the Assyrians or the Babylonians, depending on who was conquering, would walk on the backs of these people like they were a road. 
And it was to say, this is who you are. You are nothing more than pavement to us. We will walk on your back. And they did for many centuries. And now God is saying, the ones who have walked on your back, they're going to drink the wrath that you've been drinking. And they're going to take it. If you read the book of Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk is a tremendous short version of this. The book of Habakkuk basically says, Judah, the southern kingdom, you have sinned. I'm sending the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they're going to hammer you. In the end of Habakkuk, Habakkuk describes how he reacted, that his knees were knocking together and his stomach hurt and he was about to throw up. He was sick at this. The Chaldeans, those are the worst people on earth. But then in the middle of Habakkuk, God says, but don't worry. When I'm done with that, then I'm going to turn on the Chaldeans and say, how dare you come against my people? I love that. That is so just. That is so beautiful. God will vindicate his people. Now the tension in this text, it starts to build to a breaking point and God starts revealing information that'll make their jaws drop. And here's a seventh oracle. God is taking you back. God is taking you back. And we see this in chapter 52 in 10 verses, a longer oracle here. Jerusalem shall soon be filled only with true believers. There shall be peace and joy. If you've been to Jerusalem, it's barely filled with any believers, much less filled with all believers. But here's the promise. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Peace and joy. And God is going to tell them now that they have not been permanently turned over to their sin. The transaction was never finalized. This is yet another reason that I always want to believe that God will restore Israel because he's going to say here, yes, it seems that I sold you, but I never finalized the transaction. Look at verse three. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing. In other words, I was not giving giving recompense and you shall be redeemed without money. It won't cost you anything. I'm gonna rescue you. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down into, at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. In other words, Egypt and Assyria, they didn't pay God anything for God's people. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. What is he saying? He's saying that the transaction was never finalized. The exchange was never completed. Now he's going to say that the rulers of the peoples who have oppressed Israel, Assyria, Babylon, that they, they boast, they shout. The, the word that Isaiah uses here is that they wail. They're, they're shouting victory. They're thinking that they've defeated Yahweh. They've defeated his people. It says at the end of verse five, their rulers wail. It means that they're, they're, they're shouting, they're boasting. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day, my name is despised. And so God is promising that he will take them back. Yes, the oppressors are, are boasting. And if we could put it into our context to the unsaved person, sin boasts in your life that I have conquered you, but God wants to come and conquer sin. And so what is he going to do? God promises Israel, I'm taking you back. Verse six, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak 
here I am. And now Isaiah breaks into a prophetic song, a song that proclaims that eventually all the world will see that God has redeemed his people. If I can put it this way, that what is known only to those who read this book will someday be known to every person standing on the earth. It'll be known globally. And this beautiful song, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Hey, this is the picture of, of a of a fleet-footed quick messenger and there's lots of them and they're standing on the mountaintops of Judah and they're shouting that God is on the throne now. And they're, they're, these are beautiful feet. And he says, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. This is such a contrast. The book of Psalms has an entire psalm devoted to the exiles in Israel who sit by the rivers of Babylon and they weep and they won't sing anymore. And even their captors say, sing us some of the songs of your country, of your city. And they say, How can we sing? We're not home. But here, the song will be the voice of the watchman, and in verse 9, break forth into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Do you ever feel invisible in the world right now? Do you ever feel like eh, Christians are the biggest dum-dums on earth according to everybody else? And we are, we're characterized, we're, we're mocked, we're, we're falsely accused, and we're made fun of, and you think this just isn't right. Well, this gives us a promise that someday the tables will turn. Everybody on earth will see that our God reigns. They will see that. Oh, but we have a twist. Here's the twist. To the naked eye, it may seem that God is speaking only to the exiles in Babylon, and certainly this would give them hope. It would give them assurance but direct references to the exile, direct references to Babylon, direct references to Cyrus, who was God's instrument of rescue, those references ended in chapter 48, verses 20 and 21. We haven't seen them since. After that, we're looking bigger, we're looking broader, we're looking wider at more spiritual realities. And all of a sudden, we begin to see this. There's a final oracle, and we might title this oracle you must repent to be saved. You must repent to be saved. Verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Now, some feel that this is a reference to carrying the vessels of the temple back to Babylon. But there's clearly a larger spiritual standard in mind here. And by the way, to bear the vessels of the Lord, there's only, there's only one set of people who get to do that. Those are priests. It is a priestly function. But it seems here that all who are departing, departing and coming back to the Lord, that all of them are carrying out this priestly function, that all who are departing are representing the Lord. Chapter 51, 17 through 23, it gave a new spiritual reality. It, it gave the reality that the wrath of God, remember we saw this, is, is finished. The bowl of his wrath is, is done. It's being taken away. They've been ransomed. 
And now, because God ransomed them from his own wrath, now there's a call to leave their own sinful lives behind, to leave their old ways, to turn away from that which separated them from God in the first place. And now we start to see that the rescue, the redemption that God is promising is far more than just a one-way ticket from Babylon to Jerusalem in the 5th century B.C. Because unlike the Exodus of old, there is a confidence. Look at verse 12. For you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. In the Exodus, what was the theme? It was hurry up, get out of here. Go, run. But here, these who have repented, who belong to the Lord, they will be protected. This is much more than just a trip from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is a spiritual reality. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves. So now we have these oracles. Remember the past and the future. A great division is coming. No one can hurt you. The Lord is dressing for battle. Death shall not conquer you. God will vindicate his people. God is taking you back and you must repent to be saved. These start to have a real New Testament and new covenant feel to them. There's something new and something spectacular is here. You can sense that something is, is just bursting in anticipation that God is going to give us a reason that his faithfulness in the past gives us hope in the future. He's going to give us a reason to be patient that God will divide the ungodly from the godly, that God will protect all who are his own, that God is now getting dressed to win the battle of the souls of all who would believe in him, that God is providing the way for death to never conquer you, that God will vindicate all who, is his, that, who are his, that God will restore, he will take you to himself. But you must repent. You must humble yourself to be part of his plan. And now the text is just aching to reveal God's ultimate plan. But he does it one more way. So we can't go on yet. We have to do the eight themes that are repeated at least two, three, or four times. A stunning, stunning piece of literary masterpiece here. First theme, we might call it consolation. Consolation. Chapter 51, verse 3. Don't try to turn to these. We're going to go through these in in, in bullet point form here. 51, verse 3. The Lord comforts Zion. 51, verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. 51, verse 22. The Lord pleads the cause of his people. He offers consolation. There's a second theme, restoration. Chapter 51, verse 3, Eden is coming back. If you ever wondered what the Garden of Eden was like, just wait and you'll get to see it. The Garden of God will be reborn. Chapter 51, verse 22, the wrath of God will depart. That is restoration. There's a third theme. We might call it finalization. Finalization, that the big overarching redemptive plan will be completed. 51, verse 6, my salvation will be forever. 51, verse 11, sorrow and sighing will flee away. 52, verse 1, the unclean will never again come to Jerusalem. 52, verse 10, all the earth shall see the salvation of God. Finalization, the plan will be completed. We might identify a theme and we might call it classification. Classification. 51 verse 4, give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. 51 16, you are my people. 52 verse 6, my people shall know my name. God is proudly claiming Israel as his own. And he's classifying them as belonging to him. 
What a safe place. What a powerful confidence. There's a fifth theme that happens at least two, three, or four times. Liberation. 51 verse 4, I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Liberation and freedom is coming ultimately. Liberation from sin, of course. In chapter 52 verse 10, the salvation of God, the liberation from sin is plain for all to see. It will become the obvious truth of the earth. If you've ever shared the gospel with somebody and they, they just are just glazed over and you think, don't you understand God wants to liberate you from the, your sin? It's as plain as day. But it's not plain to them because the Holy Spirit hasn't revealed it to them. But there will be a day when everybody understands that. When the gospel is what we talk about with our neighbors and what we talk about as we walk down the street. Then there's a sixth theme that happens two, three, or four times. Justification. Justification. Now we're starting to see the hints of the doctrines of grace being revealed in the Old Testament. Chapter 51, verse 7, God calls his people, you who know righteousness. Now, if you know your soteriology, you cannot know or be or exhibit the righteousness of God unless it is given to you, unless it is imputed to you. At the end of 51, verse 8, my righteousness and my salvation, they're paired together as the same thing. In other words, that those who are saved will possess the righteousness of God. Justification. We could identify a seventh theme, fortification. Fortification. Can anyone take salvation away? Will it ever be in jeopardy? 51, 7 and 8 says, no one can harm God's own. Salvation is forever. This is the doctrine of assurance of salvation. 52, verse 12, the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guide, guard. This is, a, this is God in front of you, God behind you. I mean, honestly, just reading Isaiah 51 and 52, it makes me believe in the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. The thought of me being able to lose my salvation is ludicrous because God is my forward guard. He is my rear guard. And then we would identify the final theme. We might call it domination. Domination. And these I will read to you. Chapter 51, verse 5. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Chapter 51, verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Chapter 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The arm of the Lord, the the strength and the domination of God to accomplish salvation for his people, not just to get them out of Babylon. We're way past that, way beyond that. But to accomplish salvation from sin, not only for Israel, but for all of the nations. And so we see consolation, restoration, finalization, classification, liberation, justification, fortification, domination as demonstrated by the arm of the Lord. But what is the arm of the Lord? Well, we get a hint at the literary center of this section. Chapter 51, verse 16. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. There's something different going on here. It's something mysterious. It's, it's an aside. It's different. It's as if God is holding this conversation. He says, time out. I have something to say, not to you, but to somebody else. 
Because what we have in this unique material that goes far beyond just promises to Israel, this is a commission. This is a directive and it's aimed at someone, an individual. God has put his words in his mouth. This is a minister of God's word. This is someone who has been in the shadows covered by the hand of God, a mystery yet to be revealed. And this person, this is stunning. He'll establish a new order. He'll establish the heavens. He'll lay the foundations of the earth. Wait a minute. We already have a heavens and the earth. God is saying someone is coming and I'm going to commission him to make a new heavens and a new earth. Who is this? He's declaring Israel to be my people. Who is this? And this someone, how will he be the minister of God's word? How will he establish a new world order? Chapter 52, verse 6. It reveals it. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. What does that mean in Hebrew? It means I'm right here. You can see me. Here I am. The point of this whole section of 51 and 52 is that that we spoke of before, that, that this text commands to listen and to respond. It gives eight oracles to point us to this surprise. This text has these eight repeated themes that are bursting with anticipation. It strains for us to see something. Why is there this drum roll before a grand finale? Why the mystery? Why the shadow in the hand? Why the fuse that's been lit that's ready to explode with heavenly truth? What is it that's been waiting backstage to be revealed? What is the water that's bursting at the dam to take it down? This is the introduction to the clearest, most amazing passage in all of the Old Testament which promises a Savior and tells Israel exactly how the Lord will offer salvation. When the curtain comes down, when we see the introduction to the doctrines of grace as revealed in the giver of grace, this whole section is the introduction to the reason that the book of Isaiah is often called the gospel according to Isaiah It is the one who began narrating in chapter 49 and who's hinted at. Just little hints in this section. We get three of them. The arm of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, the arm of the Lord. Who is this introducing? Look at chapter 2, 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when the soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many And he shall divide the portion with the strong, the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Oh, now we understand. The first time Messiah came, his people murdered him. The second time he comes, they will rejoice in him because he will say, here I am. And they will say, we know you, we love you, our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. What an introduction to the Lord. Listen, Isaiah began this way. Chapter one, verse two. Children I have reared and brought up and now they have rebelled against me. And now we come to God's solution. His solution is that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why is it that in chapter 51, verses 17 through 23, that God can simply call off the wrath? Why is it that he can take the cup of wrath away from Israel, away from all who have been disobedient to him? Because the servant, the Messiah, The Lord Jesus Christ will bear that wrath and ultimately it won't just be that God hands the wrath in retribution to the enemies of Israel. Ultimately, he hands that cup of wrath to his son, Jesus Christ, who will drink it on their behalf. And all of a sudden in Isaiah 53, it just becomes clear as a bell. It becomes obvious that in pouring out his wrath on Christ, He can now give infinite grace so that he can make the promise. My righteousness will endure forever and my salvation to all generations. And there's only one response to that and that is to say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and praise the Lord. Next week, we're gonna slow down and we're gonna take four messages and four times to just work our way through the consummation, the consolation of Israel, the greatest Old Testament passage on Messiah that we just read. So we'll slow it down and we'll just savor that and and take that in slowly. Our Father, we do praise you. We praise you. We praise you. Your kindness and your grace to your dear people Israel prove to us these thousands of years later that your kindness and grace extended to us will be efficacious. It, it It is powerful. Your grace is powerful enough to save us Every person sitting in this room is filled with wickedness. We were born rebelling against you. The first words out of our mouths were rebellious words. Our first actions were rebellious actions. Our first thoughts were selfish and about me. And we have been sinning ever since. 
And yet your gracious kindness is sufficient that when Jesus Christ drank to the dregs the cup of the wrath of God Almighty, he took upon himself the wrath necessary to pay for every one of my sins, past, present, and future. That even should my very last act on this earth be to sin against you, that it's still covered, it's still paid for, and that when I am absent from the body, I will be with the Lord. And so your faithfulness to Israel comforts us, it encourages us. Your plan for Israel, your plan for the nations tells us that not only are you in control of the broad plan of eschatology, but for us, we have a concern about our personal eschatology. What happens to me? So if you can save an entire nation, certainly you can save me. And you can save each person here. And for that, we give you thanks. Thank you for this glorious introduction to Messiah. Thank you for Isaiah 51 and 52, which is like the wrapping paper that just takes a long time to unwrap, but we finally get to the gift, and the gift is the Lord himself, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.